All right, we're going to finish cancer, and then we're going to go. I'm going to segue right into care of the person with col colorectal cancer. Hmm? Leave the lights on. It's too. You get too sleepy with the lights off. Am I that boring? Do I need to? Maybe I'll just stand right here with the lights off. Oh, well, I just thought you'd be easier to see my pretty slides. You have them there too. All right, I'll leave the lights on because it's so hard to stay awake during one of my classes, apparently. I know I'm boring, I'm horrible, you hate, I'm the worst instructor you have. That's okay. All right. There is a sign-up sheet going around. Please make sure you sign up for that. Still not absolutely sure, but please show up for the final on May 5th at 10.30 a.m. We seem to be about 98% sure that that's when the final's going to be. Monday the 5th. Okay, some people were, seemed to think it was Wednesday the 8th. If for some reason it... Oh, I thought that's when I was told it was. Wednesday the... Oh, that would, that's right. Wednesday would be the 7th. So who knows what she's thinking there. Anyway... Come on Monday. Now, remember I wanted you to talk about um, anticipatory grieving. Realize that people are going to start projecting their fears, concerns, and things like that. You just have to let people talk. That's really the way uh, to get them in involved. Let them, let them talk. Don't shut down communication by saying everything's going to be fine or don't think that or how can you believe that. Any of those, any of those kinds of therapeutic statements that, that block communication. So you want to be asking open-ended questions, things that can't be answered yes or no. You want to have, let people say, well, what are you concerned about? It sounds like you're concerned. Any of those kind of reflective statements. Uh, things that ask people to elaborate more on their thoughts. That's what we go for. You are not going to have a whole lot of answers. You can give factual answers about what chemotherapies, what kind of side effects, um, those kinds of things. But as far as how well people respond or why did this happen, um, we, can't, we really can't answer that. Uh, anybody who seeks spiritual guidance, please guide them to that. Also be aware that you can't impose your own spiritual beliefs not everybody's going to believe the, the, the way the world works the way you do. So you have to be very cautious and very open to whatever they want. That's what you, let, that's what you guide, them, guide them towards. Um, another good thing is you need to be out there on the internets. The internets has got all kinds of good stuff on there for you. Uh, your patients are going to be on the internets. So... Um, you need to be looking too. If you've got patients with cancer, you should be looking at the websites that they're looking for. You want to kind of screen what they're looking at. A lot of, I've put up here some good places for, um, for information that's, that's of a high quality. There's also a lot of sites out there that are bad quality. You really, it's a good, know that your patients, when they're diagnosed, the family and the patients are going to be looking at the stuff. They're going to be, they're going to be um, getting all kinds of information, some of it contradictory some of it not complete. And so it's a good idea for you to see what they're, see what they're seeing. There's also th other organizations, for example, 
Uh, some, some kids don't want to wear hats and scarves. They, want to have, they actually want to have the hair. And there's organizations that'll, that will, good wigs can be very expensive. And so there's organizations like Wigs for Kids that will actually get, get wigs uh, for you. Uh, for, if you're interested in pediatric cancer uh, in particular, this is a very good organization. Uh, National Childhood Cancer Foundation um, has a lot of good resources for both um, professionals and for family members. Uh, down here at DuPont, uh, actually, the Nemours Foundation runs this cancersourcekids.com, um, and you'll see here that it's divided up for younger kids, teens, and for parents uh, with information uh, that's been developmentally altered for the different, for the different groups. Um, Pediatric Oncology Nurses have, has a real nice um, site with lots of good information. That's apon.org. I'm going to skip through terminally ill um, just to understand, and I think I've talked about some of this, how we just uh, have to shift sometimes to palliative care. <coughs> Comfort can become a, a, a main concern. Um, Trying to maintain control during that stage is real important. Um, a lot of times, there's a lot of fears about parents not being there when somebody dies. And also the dying process, you know, if you're working in a, in a hospice situation, uh, as you become more familiar with how people die, they all do, people do it all a little bit differently, but they also tend to follow certain trends or certain things may happen, and it's a good idea to warn people of that. So, for example, it can be very, very frightening when somebody goes into what's called chain stokes breathing, where they go, <gasps> and, they, and they breathe like, and, they <sighs> and then they just, you know, they, it looks like they've stopped breathing, and then they like, oh, very, very frightening. And a lot of times people want to call 911 for those kinds of, of things. I told you about some of the non-therapeutic things to say. These are, these are some examples of, of things. All of these things either dismiss concerns of people um, and, and tell people that they're, they're, they're not really, you're not really concerned about their, their feelings. Mostly we say these things because it makes us feel better. So be very cautious about saying things that are going to reduce your anxieties. These are examples of some things that you can say that are more open. These are open-ended things, encourages people to, to talk. Um, and after somebody's died, too, things like, you know, be honest. I'm, you're going to miss them. Uh, you know, t tell me some things that you, 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 know, you remember. These are the times that often when people want to talk about the, their, their loved ones. So instead of just dismissing them, letting them, letting them talk is real important. Uh, another thing is, is that when you, if you work in oncology for a long time, it really don't don't think it's not going to affect you, or don't think that for somehow I'm supposed to be above it all and not be affected, and that something must be wrong with me because I am bothered by it. Frankly, I think you should be bothered by it. The key is, is that you understand that this is very emotional. Um, the way I handled it philosophically was is that I would never have had the opportunity to meet these people, get to take care of them, get to know them. Uh, I was let into their lives and I appreciate that experience, but there was nothing either of us could have done to prevent this coming together. You know? And so we try, as a nurse, the best I can do is make this experience uh, good, as, as, as easy as I can um, for them. Um, but you, nurses also go through a lot of these reactions. One of the things that is done on a lot of 
units, some oncology units, particularly if there's a lot of deaths are experienced, is to have periodic support group meetings. Some, some hospitals will bring in uh, therapists and have regular, regular meetings. I know that the, the nurses that I worked with, we were very close as a group. We did a lot of things outside of work together and that seemed to really just help us work together um, it, it, through, the, through the stresses. And there's a lot of grief that you do. You know, you take care of somebody for a long time. Sometimes they come in and you get to know them over several years and then they, and then they die. You're going, to be, you're going to be affected by that. If you're ever in a situation of being a head nurse or something, be aware that you know, your nurses are affected by this and you can't just say, okay, time to move on and take another patient. I know one thing that was very difficult for us is if we would have somebody die, let's say at five in the afternoon and then at, at six, uh, we get, we're getting a call for a new admission. You know, the bed's still warm and they want to put somebody else in it. And it was very, very hard on us to, to just say, oh, okay, now we just have to just suck it up and move, move on. You know, so you have to be aware of the reactions on, your, on yourselves. So, you know, cancer is one of those things that affects so many people in our society. We, you know, remember we, at the beginning we had the, the show of hands where nearly everybody in the room was affected um, personally in some way. Uh, it's not just understanding disease, but also understanding the psychosocial effects of it. There's so much um, um, physical care involved in just knowing about all the different chemotherapies and the treatments, but also a lot of psychosocial care that is involved. And so it really requires a blend, a blend of both. Um, no matter who's affected, keep in mind that there is an entire family. Most everybody has family members. Don't forget them. So it's not just the spouses, even if it's an adult. Even if you have an, uh, an elderly adult, they might have adult children. They're affected too. Make sure that you're directing your care to everybody in the family. Um, and just keep in mind that depending on how far along they are when they're diagnosed, what their developmental age is, uh, and also the, what kind of support they have and what their family structure is will all affect the way you plan and implement your care. Any questions on cancer? Okay. All right, we're going to now go into um, a highlight show of nursing care of the client diagnosed with um, colorectal care and with a little, little discussion on ostomy care. Um, third most common cause of, of death, 130,000 new cases per year. Um, a lot of medical plans include preventive uh, diagnostic or diagnostic screening tests uh, after a certain age. After 50 years old, um, the uh, a flexible sigmoidoscopy is usually recommended on an annual basis. Um, in some cases, depending on your history, uh, other cases it may be every three years. But it's but. Um, it's, it's been shown probably to have the biggest effect on reducing deaths because uh, colon cancers that are diagnosed early are very treatable and survival rates are very high. If it's, if it's late though, then the, your survival rate goes, goes way down. Also keep in mind that the cancers can occur anywhere um, from the ascending to the descending colon uh, we have a much easier time visualizing and finding out about tumors and polyps that are down here 
in the descending colon that's on your left side. It's much harder to find things that are up here in the transverse and even harder to find things that are on the ascending colon. And that's why we use a flexible sigmoidoscopy to try to get a peak up there, but it's still very hard. So, so you're, if you have polyps here, it's, it's possible that they don't get um, diagnosed. They're often asymptomatic, that people can have the polyps and not, and not know it, and there not be any signs uh, that are very visible. And that's one of the problems why it can sometimes go along for a long time before anybody notices. But as you can see, that with early, with early detection, survivability is, is very high. The problem is, is that most are not diagnosed early. Ah, come back here. There is one thing that's been shown to be preventive for colon cancers, and that's having a low-fat, high-fiber diet. And also, the research has been showing that having good amounts of calcium in the diet per day, 1,200 1, milligrams per day. That's equivalent of uh, three glasses of milk, eight ounces of milk. So a lot of people aren't getting that. So um, calcium supplements and things like that are probably a good idea. Uh, but these are the only things that really have been shown to have a real preventive um, action. There we go. Um, Five-year five year survival um, is 80% right now. Signs and symptoms. Some of these will depend on where it is, whether it's right-sided or, or left-sided. Uh, as the cancers develop, people often become fatigued, get weak, signs of like shortness of breath. Uh, changes in bowel habits, where before maybe they were used to going every day or every other day or two times a day or whatever it is, and now they're doing it differently. They find, may often find themselves not going as, as often or maybe going more often than they uh, saw. Seeing blood in the stool, uh, frank, they'll see bright red blood in the, in the stool. If people are noticing that, the sad thing is sometimes people see that and still don't do anything about it. A lot, for some cases, that's the, only, the first thing that causes people to actually do something. They'll ignore the other, the other side effects. Uh, abdominal pains, as you can imagine, if things are getting blocked, not moving through as well, our gut is very, very sensitive to uh, any kind of changes in size. So if it expands, uh, we're, there's, there's nerves in your colon that are very, very sensitive to that, and they can cause, cause a lot of pains. Uh, notice that, that on the right side, on the ascending colon, um, iron deficiency anemias uh, and fatigue are most common, but very often people don't have a lot of symptoms in, in that case. In the left side, um, more often they start to see the bowel obstructions, um, they'll have either constipation or diarrhea, or ribbon stools. You know, and I think of this as, uh, do you remember, you ever play with Play-Doh, and they had the little thing you push, you put the Play-Doh in and you push the... You push it down and it extrudes out in little ribbons. You ever do that? Well, that's kind of what happens when you have polyps in your colon. You've got a little Play-Doh extractor there and you're pushing down. And so the stool that normally would come down as a nice solid turd now is coming down in little ribbons um, because it's going past the polyps. So the polyps are acting like an ex a Play-Doh extruder. You'll never play with Play-Doh again. I have some brown Play-Doh here and to demonstrate. 
Uh, we talked about the importance of early detection. Um, between 40 and 50, um, this, the research says probably your best bet is to uh, once a year or so to check for occult blood in the, in the stool. And a, a hemocult test is just, uh, you take a, a just, you can even just take a, a wipe from, uh, from wiping yourself off or you can, uh, if you really want to get uh, fancy, you can take a long stick and poke it into, a, into the stool and then wipe it onto this little card here and then you drop a little reagent on it and you turn it over and look for color change that's uh, sensitized to um, the uh, protein in blood. The only problem is, is that some foods, like if you like raw hamburger or raw steaks and things like that, you'll also tend to get hemocult positive and even some things like grape juice and stuff can cause uh, hemocult positive tests. So it's not always the most accurate. You can have, you can have cancers and not have positive because all this is depending on is that as stool goes by a polyp, it scrapes it a little and it bleeds a little and then that gets into the stool. That's the, that's the idea between a hemocult. So it's not a guarantee because it's negative that you don't have one. But if you do showing positive for blood, it's a very strong possibility that you, that you do. Uh, research now says what you need after 50 years old is every three to five years having a flexible sigmoidoscopy. Uh, if you have a family history, they may want you to have it every year. Um, most um, healthcare plans like the one that we have, uh, like employees here at Westchester have, it will, after at age 50, um, you are uh, eligible. They won't, they won't, but they won't pay for it at 49 because the statistics show that it just doesn't uh, the, the chances of finding anything are very, very remote. But once you get, yes? Oh, good, good point. If you have an immediate family member with colon cancer, then it starts at a much younger age, and you said 25. Your dad was diagnosed at 38. And, wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, Katie Couric's husband died in, I think he was less than 40 or near around 40 when he, when he died of colon cancer, similar situation. Um, yeah, and I don't know the situation with insurance companies. Do they, will they pay for it if you have that immediate history? Yeah, a lot of times those things have to be negotiated with them, but um, it, in the long run it pays the insurance company to pay for it because you're less likely to have the more expensive uh, cancer treatment. Um, there is sometimes at a younger, when you're younger than 50, uh, NPs, you know, you'll do a, a digital rectal exam. Um, of course, that's a, as opposed to an analog rectal exam. No, I'm sorry. Um, but again, this is only telling you anything that's that far in. And as you see, you've got feet to go. So it doesn't really show you a whole lot. Uh, sometimes they use things like a barium enema to visualize. You see, so you swallow the barium and then they look for any kind of polyps. Uh, there's a new test, new thing using an MRI called a virtual colonoscopy where they try to create a 3D view of your colon using an MRI. Um, the only problem is, is that there's really questions about how good that is uh, for visualizing small polyps because it's, it's sort of a computer generated view of your colon based on an MRI so it may, so, so small changes and things may not really show up. So most people aren't accepting a virtual colonoscopy yet as a di true diagnostic tool, but it's appealing to people because you're not putting anything in your rectum. 
Most people have some opposition to putting stuff in their rectum. This is an example. Here's, here's what you would see during a sigmoidoscopy. Uh, doctors putting this in and watching on the screen as it goes up. As you can see, this is uh, a flexible tube. There's a camera on the end, and there's a little steering device so that you can go up, make your turn, and then, and then peer down. The light shines in the colon, and you get a nice picture of what's happening. Generally, you're going to be um, given some kind of uh, sedative through this to relax you, but you're not going to be knocked out um, through, the, through this. You don't need general, general anesthesia, um, but some Valium or something like that can go a long way to, to uh, relaxing you um, through this. Here's what you see in the sigmoidoscopy, the pictures. These are pictures from inside the, uh, the colon. Um, these are little polyps here. Here's one that actually came down and, go, and went all the way across and connects to the other side. And this is when we were talking about the Play-Doh extraction. Well, this would be an example where you would get two ribbons of stool going by. So you'd get a little one and a big one um, coming, coming by. Um, polyps are usually considered the early stages of cancer. And so if they are seen, they are removed. Uh, and it seems to go a long way to preventing cancer if, if the polyps are, are removed. They, polyps get clipped out. The sigmoidoscopy has a little, little device that can come out and clip off the, the uh, polyp and bring it back out. Uh, and then they get uh, a biopsy to see whether or not they have turned into a precancer, they're precancerous uh, or just a benign. You know, not to, because you have a polyp doesn't mean that you have cancer, but it could be a precursor to it. If it's shown that you do have cancer, if those polyps are cancerous, uh, or if there's sections of the bowel that have that where the the uh, cancer has spread into the bowel, uh, the treatment is uh, first is surgery, a resection. A resection means to remove that portion of the bowel. That bowel will can then either be put back together, can be sewn back together. We just remove the one section, or a, col a colostomy, colostomy will be performed and that is is at that point the the colon is removed and then what's left is brought to the surface of the skin and then the stool will come out uh, through a through a stoma on your skin um, sometimes radiation is used particularly with the rectal cancers need radiation and uh, most cancer treatment and will also along with the surgery will also have a course of uh, chemotherapy after you've recovered from the surgery. Uh, if you have anybody who's going to be getting um, a, a colostomy, they have to, they have a, obviously, as you can imagine, a very extensive bowel prep. A lot of uh, enemas and laxatives are given to clean them out as much as possible. They're also given IV antibiotics and oral antibiotics. Anytime you cut into the bowel, uh, it's very common to give preoperative antibiotics because as soon as you cut the bowel, all kinds, it's filled with bacteria. You have all kinds of flora and fauna that live in there. You need them. You have to have them. Um, but if they get into the abdominal cavity, they can cause infections. And so they'll often give uh, oral antibiotics just to try to, to, to reduce the number of fl flora and fauna that are in there then. Sometimes even during the surgeries, they will uh, put a solution of antibiotic solution into the bowel as they're doing the doing the surgery to help prevent post-op infections. It's real important to do teaching beforehand. There is a whole specialty in nursing, interstomal therapy nurse, 
uh, that will, and it's best to do this uh, well before surgery, showing people what's going to happen, what they're going to see, what they're going to feel. Um, it's also a good idea to bring in another patient who has one so they can see one for real. Talk to somebody uh, who's a peer. So if they're a young woman, try to get another patient who's a young woman to come in and talk and show them how, how it is with it. A lot of people think of this sometimes as a real life-ending experience. Um, it's a life-altering experience for sure. And so you, need, you, know, you have to learn how to, to live with it and realize that your life doesn't end with this procedure, but it's very, very traumatic and, it, and it's very upsetting because, the, because having a colostomy, remember we talked about how hair was this visible sign to the rest of the world that I've got cancer? Well, when you walk around with a bag all the time and has to change your life, think about the, how that's going to change your relationship with your, with your spouse, how that can change, uh, how you go to the bathroom at work is going to be different. You know, things, things about your life can be, can, be, can be changed. What kind of clothes you wear, what are you going to do when you go to the beach, those kinds of things are all going to be changed. Uh, a stoma, so what, the, what you do is, uh, here's an example. Before the surgery, they they, they're going to remove, they're re resecting this part of the bowel, and then the bowel is brought up through the skin here. This gives an example of what they do. They make a little slice, you bring up the, bring up the colon through here, and then you flip it inside out. You turn it in on itself, and then sew it around, and that's what the stoma, that's what a stoma looks like. This is a, this is a picture of an actual stoma from Stoma Records, but this is a this is a real live person's stoma there. That, um, that's that after they've healed, they'll, they they just have this uh, maroon, uh, moist appearance, like a like a a lump, and it doesn't show up real well here. But there's like a little a little tiny hole right there. Ah. there we go. Here's another picture to kind of help you visualize what's happening here. Uh, and then people will place what's called an appliance around, the st around it. And that's uh, a sticky, um, well, it's a sticker with a, with, a, with a ring around it, a plastic ring that like, just like a, a, a Tupperware lid will fit tightly around it. And that way you don't have leaking and it, and it keeps odors, odors in. Uh, and that, so that's how you collect what comes out of the out of the stoma. So this this um, appliance, which is usually called, uh, is changed periodically. The stoma itself, uh, as it ages, will also change. So when, after after surgery, um, the kind of you know the device that you need, or the, and the size of the hole and everything will be different than a few weeks and a few months later because it tends to to uh, get a little smaller in size as time goes by. Some colostomies are just temporary. Sometimes what the, what the surgeon wants to have happen is they want to have the bowel um, after a certain point rest, not have stool going by after, you know, after the surgery's been done. And so the, so the colostomies are used only as a temporary bypass uh, until, until the rest of the bowel heals. In some cases, if the bowel has to be removed because the cancer is that extensive, then the colostomy is permanent. So, so 
you can't, you can't tell, uh, you have to find out what the person's actual history is as far as what kind of, how long they're gonna be living with the, with the colostomy. Uh, as a nurse, you wanna be looking at the stoma, looking at the skin around it. Remember what comes out through the, through the uh, stoma is gonna have different pH depending on where it is in the, in the um, colon. colon. It's gonna be more alkaline the closer it is to the ascending colon. And so the more alkaline it is, the more damage it can cause the, the skin. Also, it's gonna be more liquid the closer it is to the ascending colon, right? So you're gonna have different consistency depending on where, where it is. Uh, right after the surgery, people are put on very low residue, meaning low, low fiber diets. You don't want them to have fiber in their diet. Um, because you're gonna get a lot of drainage and seepage and things will come through uh, for the first two days. Remember that, that in, your, in your bowel, uh, the as, as products pass through, water is, is increasingly resorbed, more and more nutri nutrients are increasingly absorbed, and then finally you're left with a stool that's fairly solid uh, and has been, and you've, your body has taken everything out of it that it, that it wanted. When you interrupt that, that that process means that you're going to have stools, the stools that come through a stoma are going to be looser to liquid, and it can also affect uh, your hydration status because you haven't, you, you know, you're not reabsorbing the water that you normally would have. Uh, in order to adjust to this, as you could imagine, the grieving uh, that's, uh, that's involved, Again, it's a loss, of, a loss of who you were, loss of body image, loss of your regular lifestyle, a lot of concerns about body image, sexual concerns, and how my life is going to, to change. Um, so things to, things to remember, prevention, high fat, I mean low fat, high fiber diet, calcium in the diet. Early detection, improved survival, and um, with stoma care uh, is also a, a big part of the post-operative care. Well, that went faster than I thought. Any questions? All right. I will 